Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this fine December day, where every week we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I, of course, am Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy. And today I am joined by Emily Cadet, McClatchy's political correspondent. Thanks for having me. Emily, wonderful to have you back in the studio. And this week, uh, we are especially pleased to welcome onto the program our White House reporter, still newly installed. Francesca, is it still new? Can we say new White yeah, House reporter? I think it's still, someone told me until the end of the year. It's still fair to say it's new. Okay, I think that's I think that's fair. Uh, Francesca Chambers, first time appearance on this program. Thank you so much for joining us here. Great to be here. Okay, so uh, let's let's dive right into it. Big news this week, of course, on the Democratic presidential primary campaign trail. Kamala Harris left mm-hmm. the race, and I think this is significant for very obvious reasons. She is the first. I, I think you could say the first candidate to leave the race who, at one point in this contest was considered not a front runner, but the front runner. And I think you could argue that that was the case both early on in this contest after she entered, um, had a big rally in in Oakland and really seemed like the kind of candidate who could appeal to all corners of the very diverse Democratic coalition. And then following the first debate um, in in Miami, something that we have talked about on this show before, um, but actually zoomed to the top of a lot of polls after her confrontation with Joe Biden and she looked like a very formidable frontrunner. That, of course, is <laughs> not the way that it played out, as right. it often uh, happens. Candidate on paper, not quite as strong in reality as they are on paper. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that, guys, in the, the context of why she performed so poorly in this race, to the point where she can't even make it to Iowa. Uh, she wasn't even ma- able to make it to January. She wasn't even able to make it to 2020 in this race. And and I think kind of dive into the argument that has arisen after her departure, where on one side you have an argument that she had no message, her campaign was a mess, and she simply didn't have a rationale for being president that could appeal to a lot of Democratic voters. And on the other side, uh, an argument from her campaign and some of her supporters and, and some third party observers of this, that she faced uh, an unfair and unusual amount of scrutiny in this race because she is a woman, because she is a woman of color. And I want to dive into this because I feel like, and you guys, would I think, will agree with me in this race, there is the story and then there is the meta commentary around <laughs> that story yeah. every every time. And it is a, a discussion, and I think it's certainly a, appropriate, that are we in the media and even Democratic voters and the Democratic establishment applying a fair and even standard across the board to all candidates, including to, to again, candidates of, of color or uh, female candidates? And, and it's a really fascinating argument to me, and it's something that as reporters we've had to really consider. So I, that's, a, that's a long wind-up, Emily. <laughs> it's a long wind-up. I, uh, you know, I, I apologize for that. But I wanted to, to get your thoughts of let, let's 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 start here. What is the, the sort of the thirty second explanation of why Kamala Harris is has tumbled out of this race? In in your view, well, I think you alluded to one of the key factors in in your opening remarks, and that is she was attempting to appeal to all corners of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. and in doing so, I think she ended up coming off as sort of vague in her pronouncements. She was very cautious in coming out on certain issues that were divisive, you know, something like Medicare for all. She sort of tried to split the baby, ended up not satisfying anyone. And I think trying to be so broadly appealing in the primary like this doesn't work as well 
in this day and age where you really see candidates mobilizing support because of their strong positions on certain issues. I mean, it maybe didn't work so well for like Jay Inslee trying to run as the climate candidate, but I do think there's something to be said for in this sort of micro-targeting environment we have, really coming out and having a defining focus and niche within especially a field this big. And so I think that was one of her primary issues. I think it also speaks to the fact that in a lot of ways, she was trying to run as the Obama of 2020 and we are in an entirely different political so, climate so what now. So what do you mean by that, the Obama of 2020? Well, she was trying to appeal to the same coalition. I mean, they talked about that very explicitly at the beginning of the race. Okay. She was trying to appeal to and mobilize the exact same Obama coalition. People mm-hmm. of color, women, educated, college-educated white voters, and young people. And she wasn't able to do that. She was able to get small pockets of people from all of those demographic groups, but she was never able to pull away African-American voters in the Mm -hmm. South from Joe Biden, which was critical to her whole premise for running. South Carolina strategy did not work out. Right. uh, For for her, for sure. Right. Young people, you know, really seem to be stuck with Bernie. To a a smaller degree, Andrew Yang has a a really core following among college age and and young voters. And so I think her strategy... and how she thought she could appeal to people through this lens of 2008, through this lens of the Obama coalition, Mm -hmm. it didn't come to pass. And that might be a reflection of her as a candidate. I think it's also a reflection of just, we are not in the year 2008. We're in a post-Trump political universe and people are looking for something different. Right, right. I I think the Democratic coalition, as we've talked about on the show a lot, has changed a lot since Obama's day. And what you mentioned is, is, I think, a political strategy that seems to work more often than not in presidential primaries where you kind of start with a smaller base of support and you build out from there. You don't start with a broad coalition. Yeah. Again, because people don't know you as well, there is so much competition. And and it was hard for Kamala to find that beachhead in, yes. in, the, in the context of this race. That campaign, something I've never seen before, right? There were not one, not two, not three, but four stories that I count, two from Politico and two from the New York Times, almost pre-mortems of her campaign or, or detailing infighting uh, between the campaign. The New York yeah. Times, of course, wrote a story where they said they interviewed 50 people, more than 50 right. people in the Kamala Harris orbit, dissecting why her campaign was dysfunctional and, and a mess. And and I'm curious, you know, back to the, the question I set up at the top, you know, how much of this campaign is the candidate's fault and the campaign's fault? Right. And is there any question about whether or not you know, she received too much scrutiny or, or was treated un, unfairly in this race, which granted is is something that every candidate says, particularly. Okay. After, so there's, after a, there's the so race. much to unpack there. OK, yes. let's take whether or not she was treated fairly in the scrutiny that she received. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden has been aggressively covered. And every single time that Joe Biden has called himself the president when he was the vice president and referred to himself as currently the vice president when he's not, those have been covered as major gaffes by by news outlets all across the world repeatedly. He got he got a lot he's gotten a lot of scrutiny for many of the things that he has said. So if you're going to argue that that Kamala also got a lot of scrutiny in this race, absolutely. But to say that other candidates who are maybe not females or women of color are not getting aggressively scrutinized by the media, I just think doesn't track given the way that Joe Biden has been covered in this race. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, you asked about the, the campaign versus the candidate. She had 
senior level campaign staffers who were senior level campaign staffers for Hillary Clinton. So it's not as if she did not have staff who was experienced in running a presidential campaign that made it all the way to the general election. And you talked about how she kind of came in with this larger than life personality. I think some of that played into it is because they, they came right. It was almost as if they finished one general election mm-hmm. and moved back in with this other with this other candidate and used that as a starting point. When, as Emily was saying, that could not be the starting point for for her. So I think that's a second point. But also what happened in the end. I don't want to say that Kamala Harris was a bad candidate. I think that's too simplistic and that's too trite. And Mm -hmm. I certainly think she has an opportunity to run again for president in the future. Mm -hmm. I will say that she was not prepared it often seemed on the campaign trail. And again, that goes down to candidate preparation, but also staff preparation. So I will use three instances of this. She was not prepared for Tulsi's Gabbard's attack on her in that debate where she had been the surging candidate. They should have been prepared for that. The surging candidate is always the person who ends up getting attacked, and she seemed completely and totally unprepared to defend her record as a prosecutor, and they should have known that it was coming from someone on the stage, even if it wasn't Tulsi Gabbard. And that was really the beginning of the end for Kamala Harris, at least in the public eye, when she didn't respond to that attack on her record. That was when things really went downhill for her, and she never recovered. But I would argue it goes way back to the beginning of the campaign. Mm -hmm. I was on the first trip that she made to New Hampshire as a candidate, which, by the way, came very late. That was in February. And so, again, later on, when they decide to concede New Hampshire altogether, I wasn't particularly surprised by that because they had gotten such a late start there. But going back to that first that first New Hampshire trip, she was at a press gaggle and she was asked about Jussie Smollett. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. right. And she got put in a really bad position because we all know how that story ends up turning out. But she got put in a bad position because she'd take one position and then have to walk back that position. So this played out with healthcare as a really big deal later on, but it was playing out even then. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be that the way the campaign addressed that by trying to put her in less off-the-cuff situations, mm-hmm. because if she's getting asked something on a debate stage that they could totally prepare her for, then she was fine. Yeah. But an off-the-cuff attack from Tulsi Gabbard couldn't handle it. Uh, a gaggle with reporters noticed that those were kind of few and far between at a certain point because she was making statements that they had to then clean up after the fact. Mm -hmm. And so my third point is that at the Iowa State Fair over the summer, I had asked her about guns and whether Walmart should sell guns or not. When I asked Tulsi Gabbard that question, she was very clear and concise. That's up to Walmart, period. But Kamala Harris is like, I don't think they should. And then she's like, well, but it should be up to them and kind of backtracking and reeling even in her answer then. And it was just another perfect example of sometimes it wasn't just, I think, about not being able to choose sides between like the left, you know, or the right or progressives or wherever she was on those issues. It was just about being unprepared sometimes for questions that they should have absolutely known were coming. Well, and and so, Emily, that strikes me. And and that's a a great point from Francesca, where off the cuff, she she seemed to struggle the most, both on the campaign trail, both in town halls, mm-hmm. um, when she, you know, and, and this has been a criticism of her in, yeah. in the past that when she is scripted, she is excellent. And mm-hmm. we saw that in the first debate when they knew that they were going to set up an argument against Joe Biden and busing. But this is a longstanding criticism of her that that maybe she doesn't have a core set of values from which, you know, it's so it makes those off the cuff answers easier if you know who you are and where right. you're coming from. Yes, I think that's something that we've heard going back to her days in California. A consistent critique of hers in the state has been that she sort of blows with the political winds. Um, Now, her defenders will point out that she's long been 
for example, opposed to the death penalty, and she stood up for that early on when she was DA. But then as attorney general, she said that she would continue to use the death penalty, even though she personally didn't believe in it. There's a lot of examples of her sort of shifting, not super dramatically, but certainly kind of edging one way or the other, as she saw was strategically in her advantage in California when she was district attorney, when she was attorney general, when she ran for Senate. And, uh, and, and this goes back to the scrutiny question. Again, I think that there's also been a consistent belief in California that she has never really faced the scrutiny that she should have faced in California. And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, it, you know, it's a huge state. And frankly, politicians, even statewide politicians and statewide elections don't get that much attention. It's hard to break through. Another thing, she just she was in this, you know, Democrat on Democratic primary in her Senate race against Loretta Sanchez that frankly wasn't that competitive. And she sort of glided through and at that point had this gloss of being this rising star in the Democratic Party and, and wasn't really questioned a lot about her record on criminal justice. I mean, she she came up at a time when, you know, the tough on crime movement was really still at its heyday. And then as she was leaving office as attorney general, that's when Black Lives Matter sort of came up. And you can kind of see her evolution on a lot of those issues um, as it became more politically feasible for her to be more, as she called it, a progressive prosecutor. But when I talk to people in California, I think this is what I wanted to talk yeah. to you about. This is, to me, this is a fascinating, a really fascinating point. Yeah, that she, I mean, she simply was not consistently progressive in her in her values or in her record when she was coming up as a prosecutor. I think in a lot of ways she was, but she didn't always push the envelope on, on some of those key issues like sentencing reform mm-hmm. or some other, there were a lot of other key examples. And so her record isn't entirely consistent. And, I, you know, as, as Francesco mentioned, she wasn't really ever able to effectively defend that. She would deny that there were inconsistencies. She would gloss over it. She would just kind of make statements like she did in that debate with Tulsi Gabbard, where I'm proud of my record as a prosecutor. And they never really figured out how to handle that key question, which I think really spoke to some of the problems she had in her informing an identity as a candidate on the campaign trail in 2020. You you have mentioned before to me, Emily, that there is you know, when all of this was getting started, after she had been elected to the Senate and the presidential buzz began almost immediately thereafter, that there were these questions about in, in California among Democrats who had seen her up close for years. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. That was that was the sentiment. They really they based on what they had seen, they didn't think necessarily that she was presidential caliber. I mean, that's that's not that's that is something that got lost entirely in the national discussion. But it seemed like a real talking point in California. Yeah, I think part of it was just, again, this feeling that she hadn't been really adequately scrutinized, that she hadn't really had her feet kind of held to the fire. Again, she's good in these scripted settings. She's excellent in these hearings. Some of her best moments as a senator, most high-profile moments, have been when she's in a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing questioning a Trump administration official. She's really good, and you can tell she's comfortable in that environment. What she's not as comfortable with and what became really evident, I think, in her campaign is some of the policy nitty gritty that a lot of these candidates like Elizabeth Warren or maybe Bernie Sanders are. I mean, in her defense, she hasn't had to run on those issues that much in the past. She hasn't really grappled with health care, for example, or foreign policy. It's just not something that she dealt with as an attorney general of a state. And so you can see how some, in some ways she really hadn't yet 
kind of gotten comfortable as a as a lawmaker, as a senator, and as you know someone who has to think think quickly on their feet about like critical policy issues. And I think that that is some of the criticism that that folks in California would also say about her is that she she was not great when it came to the depth of issues mm-hmm. um, that she she's very good again in scripted settings but you know when you try and like probe where she stands or what her beliefs are on a range of domestic or foreign policy issues you're not going to get a lot of detail from her and and maybe not a lot of consistency yeah I mean to me Emily that's an intriguing there's an intriguing way to look at the failure of her campaign this year and see the seeds of it long before she started her presidential campaign. Um, you mentioned, you know, her facility with policy and trying the observation that people in California had about whether or not she had a core set of values. I would argue if you even look at her 2016 Senate campaign, it really got overlooked at the time, but it was a mess. You know, in in the in 2015, so, you know, she ran in 2016. So even in the year before the actual campaign, she went through three finance directors and two campaign managers. And there were a lot of Democrats in Washington who were not happy. They were not happy with the amount of drama and the, the consternation of a campaign that should have was essentially a coronation or should have been a coronation for her. Uh, so these problems are, are longstanding. I, I think now the question is, as we move forward, Francesca, what's left for Kamala Harris's political future, for her political career? She's only 55 years old. She certainly has plenty of time. There are more than candidates that we could even mention on this podcast who have failed, even failed spectacularly in a campaign only to come back years later Joe and, Biden. and win. <laughs> Possibly Joe Biden, Bill Clinton comes to mind. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. And, and so I think the immediate question is, did she take enough damage to her reputation this time around that she is no longer a viable vice presidential pick for for whoever is 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 the nominee or 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 not i mean is she still have enough talent and bring enough to the table that the nominee might consider her for vice president well this is why getting out at the time that she did well mm-hmm. might not have made sense publicly because she had qualified for the next debate makes sense for her political career because it was better to get out while the going was good than for this to get worse for her and so Joe Biden has already said this week that she is someone he respects and that he s- suggested that she, he would still be willing to put her on the ticket. Elizabeth Warren has also made a similar suggestion this week. So it is very clear that the front runners in the race still see her as a viable number two. And even moving forward, if a Democrat were to win, she's absolutely someone that, as our colleagues at the Sacramento Bee this week uh, wrote about, who could be seen as a potential attorney general pick. And And she could always run for president again, as I said before. The things that happened to her in this race, we're not so terrible that she's just done politically. So if a Democrat, especially if a Democrat didn't win again this time, she could absolutely run again in 2024. Emily, you you did some reporting on this. Um, Of course, you know, people are going to ask what her future is nationally. People in California, of course, are wondering where her future is in in that state. What what did your reporting turn out? I mean, she'll be a a force in the state for the foreseeable future. I think most people I talk to and and that my colleagues talk to at the B said that they do not believe she will be content just staying in the Senate. She's not going to be a Dianne Feinstein Senate lifer. She has too much ambition for that. And and frankly, as we just talked about, the the policy, the nitty gritty of policymaking and some of the the horse trading that you have to do in the Senate, that doesn't really appear to be her cup of tea. She obviously has issues she cares about. She's been a champion for immigration reform in the Senate. But I think 
I would be surprised to see her in the Senate long term. I think she's more likely to end up in a Democratic administration if one of the Democrats beats Trump. Gavin Newsom just got elected, so there's not really an opening at the governor's level for the foreseeable future, but she could potentially run again in 2024, 2028, which sounds like a long way off, but that campaign will launch <laughs> in just over a year from now. So, do you, do you think she's at all vulnerable potentially in a 2022 Democratic primary um, or you don't have Democratic primaries in California, but that her seat would be vulnerable to a challenge potentially from the left. Do you think that she has been damaged in, in that way? I know we're projecting to the future, but... I've, I've heard that. I think there's always a concern when you're running for, for president that, you know, the home state voters feel like they're being a little neglected. I mean, frankly, a lot of home state voters don't even know Harris that well, though they probably know more of her now because of her presidential run. But if you look at the the polling out of California, her approval ratings have gone down since she ran for president. I mean, most of that is more independents and Republicans dislike her as mm-hmm. she ran for the Democratic nomination. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've already heard people speculate about Tom Steyer running against her in, in 2022. California has the open primary system. So, you know, in in that case, there could be two Democrats ending up advancing to a general election as Steyer versus Kamala, and that would be quite expensive in California. Um, I wouldn't say Tom Steyer's current campaign gives me a lot of faith that he would be a strong challenger to an entrenched incumbent, but maybe I'm wrong. Money helps. Yeah, money helps in California. I don't think anyone that I talked to necessarily thought she had a chance of losing her seat, but she certainly has a chance of attracting a, a legitimate challenger mm-hmm. at this point. I do think there is that air of being invincible has kind of gotten washed off. If I could just jump in there for a second, I just want to go back to the strategy of her presidential campaign for a moment because you brought up California. Yeah, I think this was another mistake for the reason that you just said, which is they were banking on the idea she would win her home state and all the delegates that come with California. And they thought if she could win Iowa, then it would slingshot her to victory somehow in California. And if you look at the polling in California, that just simply wasn't the case. There was just that new poll that I know we've been talking about before we we got in here about California. And even in California, she wasn't winning. Currently, it is Bernie Sanders who is winning. And Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren are also doing really well there. And people forget that Bernie Sanders did make it all the way to the end of the last campaign. And so he had already had to compete in California statewide. And he spent an extensive amount of time campaigning in California last time around. So he was always going to. And this time, too. He was always going to be a serious contender there. He is the only other person besides her in this race who has had to uh, compete extensively in California. Yeah. So let's take a step back. So Kamala Harris has is, is, is left the race. And I think the natural question is, what does that mean for the candidates who are still running? Look, Kamala Harris had dropped precipitously in the polls. It's not as if she had a lot of supporters left who are now going to kind of redistribute themselves um, accordingly. That's not going to move the needle very much. But there are two things that, that stick out to me. One, you know, as things stand now, the next Democratic debate, the only candidates who have qualified are white. And there was a lot of discussion about that this week and and the problems that might pose for a party that is, of course, um, at this point, less and less white. And whether or not, even if none of the candidates were doing well, and Cory Booker, who is still in the race, is not qualified for that debate because he's not doing well enough. You know, just the, the, the fact that you have a party that, you know, Pew conducted a poll in 2017 is 40% non-white uh, at this point. And yet the six leading contenders would be all white. Does, does that... Is that an embarrassment? Does that cause problems for the party moving forward? And then on the other side, you know, 
do do any of the candidates benefit? And I would actually argue, and I'd be curious either of your reactions to this, that this is um, people will argue this is good news for Joe Biden because there was a lot of speculation that Kamala Harris could eat into his support among African Americans. I would argue for Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren. This is a a bigger deal because when Kamala Harris's support spiked, it actually spiked with a lot of college-educated white voters that at this point are kind of evenly split between Buttigieg and Warren. Um, And yes, she is not doing well. But look, to me, you have demonstrated that you can, in the right circumstances, win those voters over. That's something, you know, and that there was there was plenty of race left. She could have had another moment. It could have caused problems for you, those two candidates. So to me, this is actually this actually really is good news for Pete Buttigieg and, and Elizabeth Warren. But what what do you what do you guys think? Where does this leave the race? So I'll start with Joe Biden for a second. Which, by the way, I will add, he has as the former vice president had to campaign in California, and obviously he right. uh, is picking up a lot of money from from Californians for his race, but. As far as the actual next debate, because that is coming up, goes, mm-hmm. debates, they have proven to allow people to have moments like Kamala Harris, like Amy Klobuchar, who arguably is still in this race because she had some good debate moments more recently. And the next debate could determine what happens in those debates, right, could determine uh, the outcome, who actually makes it to Iowa and who makes it beyond that. And remember in the last debate at the point when Joe Biden just forgot that Kamala Harris was in the Senate whatsoever, right? And Kamala had said the thing about, I'm I'm right here. It just keeps sticking with me this entire week, right? Like, didn't even remember she was on the stage and now she's she's not right here. (laughs) She's not right here anymore. And that was an opportunity to do what she did the first debate almost, which was could have made that into shirts, could have, you know, could have really capitalized on that. And her campaign didn't. Uh, And so campaign's abilities to capitalize on these debate moments like Bernie Sanders and how he wrote the bill and whatnot, I do think will be really large determiners heading into the beginning of the year. This is like, this is their last chance, right? Like, this is your last chance to make your argument on the national stage. Yeah. I, you know, when it comes to the, the problems for the party going forward to have an all-white slate of candidates and all-white faces on the debate stage, I think You know, I talked to maybe a dozen activists and analysts, um, people of color in the party who have been very engaged in this primary thus far. And and I think it's it's sort of a twofold answer in terms of how it impacts the race. I think on the one hand, they really want to see people like Cory Booker and Julian Castro and Kamala Harris on that debate stage because they think those voices are important and they want them included and they think they make important contributions and raise issues that, frankly, the other candidates aren't talking about. At the same time, they are not committed to voting for Cory Booker or Julian Castro or Kamala Harris. A little bit of a paradox. Yeah. They like having them there. They think it's important. But very few of the people I spoke to really thought that they had to have a person of color nominated to represent them and their issues. And again, I think that also speaks to why this is not a race that's like 2008, that those identity politics issues, I think people of all races have sort of moved beyond a little bit. Like we've made that you know, breakthrough with Obama. We want more now than just someone who looks like us. We want someone who actually fights on issues that we care about. And for young people and and young people of color, I mean, Alex, you and I talked about how Bernie Sanders is doing really well with Latino voters in places like California because they're predominantly younger and the issues they care about, they're more liberal. They want to see free college. There's all these other issues. They want candidates who talk about those things. And if they happen to be of the same race, that's great, but that's not the primary driver for their preference. And so 
what I heard from from people was that yes, we think it would not be good for the party to to not have include these voices, but we also don't think that it would it's going to hurt us in November if we nominate a white person. You, I mean, I feel like we've, we've moved into what is a much longer and bigger and very interesting <laughs> discussion. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of the things that really has struck me about this primary, the, the disassociation between the candidate's identity and their support. Right. And there is a huge, huge disconnect. And, and, and it feels like a, a significant moment when you have – you know, the candidate who attracts the most young support, for example, is a 78-year-old yeah. <laughs> independent senator from Vermont. And candidates like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker weren't able to break through with And with Pete Buttigieg, who's 37 years old, is mostly getting support from, like, baby boomers. So yeah, Exactly. And you could argue, I mean, I'm not sure if Pete Buttigieg is the number one candidate of the LGBTQ community no. right, right now. Um, you know, fascinating argument. Let's table that maybe okay. for a future, <laughs> for a future, Fair enough. A future debate. Before we leave, we want to touch on a subject that's just a little bit different than what we've been talking about. Mike Pence, just a little bit different. <laughs> Change up the discussion here a little bit. Francesca, you, you wrote a great story this week about uh, the vice president and what he plans to do in 2020. Um, and And so I will give the, the thesis real, real quick and then I will uh, talk to you. Basically, his campaign told you on the record how they see him as a compliment to, to President Trump. You know, President Trump, of course, as we all know, likes the the big boisterous rally uh, that attracts thousands or even tens of thousands of people, um, and it gets all kinds of news coverage. That's not exactly where the Pence people see him right. <laughs> fitting, fitting into that. Tell, tell us more. Well, his chief of staff openly embraced the idea that Mike Pence isn't going to be the same draw that Donald Trump is, but they felt the need to make the argument for why he's on the ticket, because there have been a lot of questions as to why even keep Mike Pence. And this does play into the other part of the discussion we're having, which is Donald Trump is a white, older male. Mike Pence is younger than him, but he's still a white, older male. And so there was some talk about why not put someone like Nikki Haley, who could get more women and more minorities involved. And so president has said that Pence was going to be on the ticket. But there is there is an argument to me. But why? And their reason for why is because he's from the Midwest. He's former Indiana governor and congressman. And so he can go speak to the voters who are, you know, they're in blue collar areas. They're mostly white working class voters who are in Michigan, who are in Ohio, Pennsylvania. Those are states that the Trump campaign and Pence's side see as states that they absolutely positively have to win again in order for Pence and Trump to be able to stay in office. So they see him as someone they can deploy to those areas. And so while the president's out doing these rallies all over the nation that are getting a lot of attention, he can be on the ground and he's effectively doing what they say is shaking hands and kissing babies is what it comes down to in these diners where people there, by the way, are surprised and delighted to see a sitting vice president. And even if it's not getting huge attention nationally, that is not the strategy. It's that almost every local market is going to write about a sitting vice president coming to a local diner and the color of those interactions. And so if they can get everyone everywhere along his bus tour to do a local media story then that's what they're aiming for. And so it's a it's a very it's a very in some ways the same strategy as maybe Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden has. Joe Biden does a lot of retail politics events, but it matters because you're not seeing Donald Trump out there doing those kinds of events. Has the speculation 
that Pence is is going to to be replaced on the ticket. That feels like it has by and large dried out to me. But what what's what's your your feeling? And of course, I mean we're we're less than a year before the election, so it would be a, a pretty dramatic thing. Right. It has it no, the speculation itself has mm-hmm. subsided. But no mm-hmm. one at that time was making an argument or writing about why is he on the ticket? Why should uh-huh, he I stay see. on the ticket? And so the piece that I wrote sought to address that. Like, why is Mike Pence here at all? Right. Why is Mike Pence here? <laughs> what is his value? What is his value add? And, right. and I would also argue that while the vice president and his team refused to talk about 2024, it's definitely the elephant in the room, yes, so to speak, right. because right. regardless of whether Donald Trump wins, loses, is impeached, all of those things, Mike Pence could still run for president in 2024. And it is the belief of allies of Mike Pence that he will. So as you look at my piece, you know, I hate to say like four years down the line, but it's true. In some ways, it seems like the vice president's team is setting that up now, even if the vice president himself isn't looking that far ahead. His allies absolutely are. We uh, just for the record, we love to breathlessly speculate about future (laughs) political (laughs) events and campaigns on this podcast. So please embrace that. You know, the interesting thing, um, uh, Emily, that strikes me about this this conversation to me. When Mike Pence was originally recruited, it was because the Trump campaign thought they needed to reassure evangelicals Mm -hmm. that Trump was was with them, despite um, we don't have to dive into it too much. But his long, well-documented personal history uh, that had almost nothing to do with the, the, the values of the evangelical community seems like that that's not a concern in, in, I th- anymore. I think that Supreme Court picks are, are a big part of the reason why. I think you're seeing and, – and at the you know, district court and the appeals court level too, that animates conservative voters, evangelical voters, much more than it has on the left, the opposite – you know, appointing liberal judges. Um, They're very concerned about the judiciary. And I think Trump has really come through for them on that front in terms of of nominating conservative judges who, you know, they hope might overturn Roe v. Wade, for example, Mm -hmm. defending, you know, religious institutions rights to say not provide birth control, things like that. So I think that to them, it takes precedence over any of his. But it still lingers. Failings. I do think it okay. still lingers a little bit, and this goes back to why Mike Pence is still on the ticket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The people who I spoke to for my article were not people who endorsed Donald Trump in mm-hmm. 2016. They were people who actually did the opposite of endorse uh, Donald Trump in 2016, and they were saying that by keeping Pence on the ticket, it tells conservatives, I'm still with you, and I'm not going to abandon you in my second term. Okay. And the fact that they're even thinking about that and saying things like that, yeah. again, on the record, yeah, I think shows that there's still a little bit of skepticism even though they're they're fully endorsing, backing, paying for ads for Donald Trump yeah. now about Donald Trump's conservative roots. Okay, let's uh, take this moment to transition to what I say every week is my favorite segment of the podcast. Tell me something I don't know, something from your notebook, some nugget from an interview or something you discovered in your reporting that would be of interest to the readers. Emily, you're the veteran on this podcast, so you get to go first. So uh, just pouring through these numbers that came out in the UC Berkeley Institute of Government Studies poll, uh, one thing that stood out to me was that Mike Bloomberg's positive rating in California is at 15 percent. 
Is that good? Uh, his negative rating is, is good? 40%. <laughs> um, and this is a state he pretty much has to have as part of his strategy to skip the early states and, and focus on, on Super Tuesday delegate-rich states. I mean, California represents the single biggest pot of delegates of any state, and he's spending quite a bit of money advertising there as well as all the other important states around the country. So um, that just shows you the mountain he has to climb in his presidential campaign. Those fave-on-fave numbers for Mike Bloomberg and polls are just brutal. You would think they probably know the – I mean, I would think the Bloomberg folks have done similar polling and are are aware of that. Um, You would would think. Maybe that's why you have to spend $30 billion in the opening week if you're advertising to try to to turn that around. I guess, you know, like you said, he's got a tall mountain to climb with that. All right, Francesca, this is your first – Tell me something I don't know. I was pulling out the reporter notebook, which, by the way, is our phones. It's our phones in this day and age, my reporter notebook. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. The uh, the figurative reporter yes. notebook at this point. Uh, Francesca, what do you got? Okay, so Joe Biden released an ad that is world leaders laughing at Donald Trump, and it is burning up the internet, as they say. It had more than 4 million views last I heard. And so I got the Trump campaign and the White House's reaction to this ad. And the campaign had said that, of course, that world leaders do not want Donald Trump to remain president, that they want Joe Biden to be vice president, because the ad, the ad is world leaders laughing at President Trump and just, you know, being disrespectful this week at NATO. Uh, and so the campaign is saying, of course, they don't want Donald Trump to be president because he's holding them accountable in NATO and all sorts of things. But I actually got some very interesting comments from the White House where they were saying that um, it's it's kind of funny that Joe Biden is making ads about other people laughing at, at someone else because of the reasons we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, which is that he's made so many gaffes and that he's usually the one who's being laughed at. And then they... Malarkey. <laughs> Malarkey, but uh, they, they you know explicitly brought up this video of Joe Biden that was going around this week where he's talking about the hairs on his leg in the pool and I uh, that one. Uh, and 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 use that as as a specific evidence of uh, you know Joe Biden has has definitely said and said done some things that they could be mocking themselves. So they're essentially br- you know brushing it off, taking it in stride. They don't feel they don't feel very threatened by this ad, even though. Democrats were saying this is a very, very good ad, that it was very, very effective. The Trump campaign and the White House are just kind of brushing it off. Maybe, maybe good for rallying Democratic voters. Yeah, I don't see that as the main strategy in a general election uh, to highlight how some foreign leaders and casual conversation laughed at Donald Trump. Call me crazy. I don't know that that's going to be the 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 main strategy. But Joe Biden, point. but it does actually play into Joe Biden's main strategy, though, which is to say that he is the only person who's in this race who actually has foreign policy experience and he knows every world leader and he could start on day one and he doesn't need on-the-job training. That is an argument mm-hmm. that he has been making aggressively for why he should be picked. So it's all playing into that. Mm-hmm. Mine is just something quick to, to note. Um, I think for all the focus on single-payer health care, and you could argue that the debate over single-payer health care has been in some ways the defining debate of this uh, Democratic primary, at least this year thus far. Uh, I would say just something percolating a little bit below the surface that is similar to the debate over free college um, and whether or not the warring plans from the Sanders and Warren wing versus the Buttigieg wing or the Buttigieg and Biden wing at this point, uh, you know, talking about making all of state universities free all four years versus a plan just to do that for people who are poor and still making uh, children of, of rich families pay their fair share in the, in the sort of verbiage of, of Pete Buttigieg. It's a really 
intense debate already in the Democratic. There have been a lot of war of words, so to speak, among the Democratic candidates about that. And I would just say that it is the sort of thing that maybe people get overlook a little bit. But I tell you who's not overlooking it, a lot of Democratic strategists, they are very sensitive about this debate, feel like that if on the Warren and Sanders side, if it's not handled correctly, the message that a lot of important swing voters get is we are here to help out the wealthy and affluent uh, suburban voters, uh, but people who don't necessarily see college as a choice for them, we're ignoring them. And in fact, mm. we're spending money on one one side of it and not helping out the other. And that that is a, a huge concern. And it's, it's actually almost like a visceral importance when you talk to certain Democratic strategists. They, they viscerally react to, to this and the politics of this. They don't think it's a good idea. So it's just something to keep in mind here as we move forward. I think something we could see even in the next debate really flash as a point of contention. Okay. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode. I want to thank Emily and Francesca. Thank you so much, guys. It's thank been you. fun. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, the inimitable David Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. I want you to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>